welcome to Speaking of College of Charleston. I'm Ron Menchaca from University Communications, and on today's episode, I speak with College of Charleston alumnus and business entrepreneur Sam Norton. Sam is the founder of Heron Farms, which bills itself as the world's first indoor vertical saltwater farm. The idea for the company sprang from a research project Sam conducted while studying in the college's graduate program in environmental and sustainability studies. In this episode, he discusses his passion for a tiny plant called a sea bean that grows naturally in Charleston's coastal waters and marshes. He explains why some of Charleston's top chefs are using the plant as an alternative to salt and how saltwater agriculture could be one solution to protecting our coastline against threats like climate change and sea level rise. Without further ado, here's our talk with Sam Norton. So before we kind of get into the business, and we're going to talk about Heron Farms, which is your business, <clears throat> talk about your college years, I want to just get a little bit of background about you. Um, so you're a Charleston native. Uh, do you consider it Charleston or more the, the, yeah, the yeah, beach? Yeah. I grew up on Isle of Palms um, in one of those converted uh Isle Palms used to be these one-story cinder block houses built by J.C. Long Company. And uh, so my folks moved out there in the 70s, and I grew up there uh, and born in 1993. Went to all, I'm a product of all the Charleston County public schools, so I hope I do them justice. Wow. And so, you know, the first thing that comes to mind, I was reading, um, reading some articles about you, some interviews you've done. Um, of course, uh, kind of a pivotal moment in, in Charleston history is, is Hurricane Hugo in yeah. 1989. Sure. You were you were not here yet. I wasn't here yet. No, I was negative four. But my, my brother was one. Um, and I, of course, hear the stories. And, and the, the first floor um, doors of the house all have the watermark from, 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 the, from the storm. Um, and so I've, it's kind of etched into my memory just from that watermark on the door. Yeah, and we'll, and 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 I and I the reason I wanted to mention that too, and we'll kind of circle back to it later. But there's a connection there with sure. with climate change and sea level rise that we'll get into, which is a really important yeah. aspect of of what you're doing now. Well, and the, and there's also the connection that my my old man was a carpenter and was restoring houses downtown, like a lot of other carpenters that had moved down here. Um, but Hugo knocked so many things down that they got plenty of work to do. And so they kind of built their careers off of off of rebuilding places like Isle of Palms and Sullivan's that used to have pine trees and those pine trees came down and, and, and took some things with them. So you you chose CFC and did you come right out of high school and did you know what you wanted to major in? I came right out of high school but had no clue. It was it was an ex I got in by the skin of my teeth, basically. You know, I, at the end of high school I had started drifting off into other other lands uh, mentally, you know, and was really just making any excuse possible to to go out and 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 go out on the town, and and so my first almost year at CFC was an extension of that, and I did, I got almost nothing done, and luckily was was withdrawn from CFC within semester two, uh, so that I did not put myself too deep in a hole, um, and and her uh, her mentorship in, in pulling me out of CFC early on was was smart and so i i it was a two-year journey back to cfc so i came back to cfc with with an open mind as an older undergraduate um and at that point knew a little bit more about what i wanted to study i needed a um a moment so i i don't really know what caused this but it all happened within the same few months where i moved out i moved downtown 
and I got back. This is when I was kind of getting back into CFC. I moved downtown to the studio apartment by myself, and I decided, well, why don't I try this? I'll get rid of my cell phone, all the social media, the Xbox, the TV, and basically I'll just have an empty apartment with my instruments and books and, you know, some some basic necessities and see how that goes. And that went really well. And that, that kind of restart allowed allowed me to come back to school and and just have an open mind and and there's so much free time when you don't have a cell phone it's it's hard to i i I want to get back to that (laughs) i can't right now (laughs) yeah but there's just there's it just seems like there's many more hours in a day i mean you can without those things yeah so where where did political science come in so was that when you came back and you needed to pick a major obviously i needed to pick a major and i was thinking that law school might be an appropriate route, but I was really kind of more interested in philosophy. And so I was I was a philosophy major, poli-sci minor, but then flip-flopped those. And so I ended up graduating poli-sci major, philosophy minor. And um, that's because I met some of my – the poli-sci professors, which you talked about earlier, Mark Long, um, John Creed, uh, Annette Watson, some of these folks – their lectures changed me so much at a time when I was really open to it. You know, I had gotten rid of all these, all this, all these distractions, and so it was clear that I wanted to do poli sci just because that's what department they were in. Mm-hmm. And this was, and this was after you got back and were, and were, and were really focused. But at that point, you were still thinking maybe law school after you finished your undergrad. Where do things? start to change and then leading into your, you know, you coming back to be a graduate student, like where's the, where's the turning point and, and, and to specifically to, to sea beans, which we'll talk about in a minute. Well, there's two turning points. One is that my brother co-founded a restaurant downtown called 167 Raw, which had started in Nantucket. And then uh, he and the, the founder, um, who was also a CFC grad, they lived together um, and, I was employee number one. My friend Sean was employee number two, and and one six seven raw brought me back into talking to people all the time because I was doing carpentry and I wasn't really interacting with that many folks. And all of a sudden, I was working at this restaurant that had a line out the door, and I was talking to different people from all around, and and that was a really fun experience um, that was happening right as school got started, and that um, led to an introduction. Uh, just a woman uh, at the at the bar at, that was, we were having a debate over who the Democratic primary candidate should be, and we very much disagreed over that one. But it was a constructive debate, and she worked at Boeing and, and uh, was working on sustainable aviation fuels using plants that were salt-tolerant. I got really interested in that, um, in their project, and started learning more, and that led to kind of this this path towards learning about um, saltwater agriculture and halophytes and this specific halophyte and things like that. And, and, and let's just go ahead and jump into it. This specific halophyte is, you call it a sea bean. So I grew up calling it sea, sea pickle, which sea is what pickle. folks around here call it. Sea beans is the name for it, in, generally the name for it in America, but there's a bunch of names. We've heard Gatorade grass, Samphire is the common European name, Salicornia is the the Latin name and um, salt daddies is probably one of the weirdest names we've heard so far, but p- p- much a bunch of monikers for it. It, it, it. It's been eaten for a long time and, and used for different purposes. And so it's got some interesting names. One day I was just walking over the Ravenel 
and saw uh, Drum Island, which is this restoration, excuse me, this um, this dredge disposal site underneath the bridge, and they, the Boeing company was talking about doing agriculture in the desert with seawater, and these things look like big deserts. So I would, so I was like, well, I'll go down and check this thing out, and sure enough, the plant they were talking about. Um, was leading most of the seawater agriculture research was this sea pickle plant that I grew up eating and was growing right there on this restoration site. And that seemed kind of too interesting to pass up. So um, I started writing about how you could restore those dredge sites using this plant and possibly have products out of that. Um, and it would help the Army Corps and it would give a product to sell. It would de- it would sequester some carbon and those sorts of things. But I was mostly drawn to the idea that Amongst the many environmental issues of the centuries, too much seawater and the related too much CO2 in the atmosphere are both free resources in photosynthesis. So if you take seawater and CO2 and you combine some light in one of these plants that's salt tolerant, you can do agriculture. And that's, that was just too interesting to, to pass up. So are you still are you still an undergrad at this point or how close are we to, to graduate school and your, and your kind of pivot there? Yeah, I, I, I told uh, Mark Long, so I was in his food, ca- the food, the polyscience food capstone, which was the mo- one of the most fascinating classes uh, ever. And uh, I was like, so I'm going to slightly pivot this. You know, I'd like to talk about food, but specifically food grown with seawater on these dredge islands, which you should not eat off of a dredge island. I realized that later on, but but for the sake of this, of that initial argument, um, I said, I've got the energy to, 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 to write a really good capstone if you let me focus on this, you know, and he, he was all for it. And uh, kind of that capstone project was the first time seriously writing about the ideas of, of seawater agriculture, which had already existed, and I was just reading the literature. But so one thing that's like entrepreneurs a lot of times have is they have an idea which they can't not do. And that was kind of one of these ideas that I thought about enough to where I had to get this thing out uh, onto paper and, and try to make it exist in real life. And that was that was when I came back to Charleston and said, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to re- apply to grad school, start a business, and let's see if either of those, if anything comes of that. I, in the first little bit of grad school, basically I was pitching this idea to um, of doing seawater agriculture as a thesis project. And the the professors involved were like, this is not in our field. You know, the, usually you uh, uh, go in under the assumption that you'll attach yourself to someone else's research and add value, right? And this was, I want to do my own research. And and uh, so there there really was, was no outlet for a while uh, until uh, Dr. Uh, Dan McGlynn took a chance and, 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 and he was very important to this whole journey. Uh, Dr. McGlynn and uh, Wesley Burnett um, did not pass on the idea, and 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 they, uh, Dr. Burnett was in the economics department. He's now at the USDA, but um, they were were great mentors. Then I had two other thesis advisors, which were outside of CFC. Hmm. So at this point, are you already thinking in terms of of um, hydroponics and and indoor growing, or is that that's later? No, it it was later because I did a project. So I, I started growing it, growing these salt tolerant plants and, and sea beans is the, the common name, but like we were growing a couple different species of, of these plants. And, um, I was growing them outdoors with seawater pumped onto land 
And at the same time, uh, some the, the co-founders at Vertical Roots had given me a couple of lights. So I was kind of doing indoor and outdoor at the same time. And what I realized was that outdoors, I'm running into issues. And it turns out these are the same issues that we were seeing in other big outdoor projects, which are a land use constraint. If you need to, if you want to do seawater agriculture, you need to be near the coast. People tend to live near the coast. Um, and they don't want a big, there's, they don't want a big seawater farm in their backyard, uh, you know, justifiably. And so that would lead projects to be located in areas which were deserted. But the issue with that is that there's no rainfall. And so then you build up salt in the soil and you end up with a very salty substrate, which can't even support the, the, the plants that have adapted to handle salt. And the third one was that, um, especially in, in South Carolina, there's a seasonality to these plants. So if you look out at the marsh in, in the end of August, you'll see it's all flowering and starting to turn brown. That's that's beautiful, but not good for agriculture. And so the indoor model solved all three of those issues. No longer a land use constraint because you go vertically. Salinity management could be done with software, so you can monitor and manipulate the salinity with software. And then there was no issues with the day length because we had replaced the sun with LEDs. There are about 75 new problems which emerged, and we now are at a stage in the company where a a less dogmatic, more more hybrid approach. Indoor farming has some things it's very good at, and plenty of things it's bad at. Outdoor farming has some things it's very good at and plenty of bad. So so a, a, sort of a, a blend of the two is, is really the path forward. So I was growing on John's Island at the same time as growing in Rita Hollings. So the John's Island was product that I would be allowed to sell, and then the Rita Hollings was product that I wouldn't be allowed to sell, but I could, uh, that I, I had undergraduate um, help on. We got a couple of surf grants uh, for, for undergraduate research. And um, so the the horizontal outdoor farm was on John's Island, and I could have customers visit and sell them things and get their feedback. And the indoor f- um, version uh, at Rita Hollings was to produce the thesis and to do, which is what Dan's specialty is, is, is do great st- statistics. That's so cool. I mean, you're you're on these, you're running these parallel tracks. One's one's research oriented, is to get your degree, uh, and and the other one is uh, dollars and cents and, and and business, but also and, but e- the each is feeding off the other and sure. informing the other. I would imagine. Well, someone needs to write a coherent, you, you know, blueprint on how to do this. But but you, if you approach grad school with a startup. They can, um, you know, they both have good and bad, and can can help each other and and, and work off of each other. And there's the the, the network effect. So, it, and and they both have a currency. One is actual dollars, and one is is publications or or number of views or, or you know so, um, or impact, you know something like that. But um, they. I, I do. They they do have this kind of weird dynamic, which is which is interesting because you you do need to get you don't. I felt like if I did the academic route with the blinders on both sides, that I would never hear from a customer, and then I'd end up with this technical insight that no one wanted to purchase. You know, and that that there are a lot of very interesting science ideas which 
end up not having good products because they don't they don't get that customer feedback fast enough. Who who are some of the first clients? Who who is the first person or chef or otherwise that said, "Here's some money, give me some sea beans." Well, technically, the first check that was written with the words Heron Farms on it um, was from Mike at One Six Seven Raw. He's 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 still the head chef there. He's a very good operator and and. Um, but he was he was a kind of a guaranteed sell. Like I could have shown up with, if I as long as I showed up with plant material, like he was probably going to purchase at least once. But so my first actual sale to someone that I did not know was was Evan. At, at the time he was at Renzo and and uh, he's 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 now with Post House and 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 done all sorts of cool things. But he was the first legitimate s- sell. You're you're giving or you know exposing the chefs and other folks to the sea bean and they're they're trying it in recipes and dishes the restaurants are saying what about this what about that is that that feedback coming back into the process yeah that was coming back into the process you know people were so chefs were calling it different things so they were they were telling me to give it a different give it different names you know because they would grow up somewhere and have a different name for it like samphire or like gatorade grass or something and anyways um they were key in the product journey because most chefs told us that they were using it as a salt alternative or, or like a, an alternative to finishing salt. So you would put sea salt on top of a dish and that would um, um, finish the, the dish, right? And so they started to use this product. And by way of doing that, we stopped thinking of it as an alternative to produce as more of an alternative to salt. And so um, in basically increase the salinity of the product. And so that was that was key to the product was listening to chef's feedback. So kind of take me to things are going great. You're winning these competitions. You're getting this, this, these crucial investment funds, and, and you're getting all this feedback from, from business people, from restaurant people. Are, are things just humming along? You have, the, you have the, the indoor farm now? or Is the experimentation over? Like when, and I know there's never like a settled point. You're never just like, ah, I'm done. I'm sure it's day-to-day still, but... When do you kind of get 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 the rhythm going, and you're and and you've got a business going, and you see that you can see it being sustainable over the long run? Well, in the rearview mirror, those milestones look like we talked about earlier, linear and and almost assumed. But those, for example, the two startup competitions that we won, those had a year in between, and there was. It was, you know, it looks like now like a very just simple kind of process. And there was so many days in between those two startup competitions where there the likelihood of, of it not existing was pretty high. And, um, and, and still now, like we are in a rhythm and a, and growing as a company. Um, but there's a, there's a interesting picture of, uh, it says this is what all startups look like, and it's a guy wearing a suit looking in the mirror, and on the front, uh, the the front of his suit is 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 all tailored and beautiful, and you can see the back of him, and it's all tattered, and you can, you can you know see his legs and things like that. But but best way to describe it is it being roller coastery and not and nonlinear, and that dissuades people from entrepreneurship. But people like me that you know I'm not like a physical risk taker. I don't do roller coasters, but I sure do love startups for for their that that pattern of the highs are the lows there are many lows but the one or two highs are totally worth it um on the restoration side so 
in the early in the in the before John's Island days when I was looking at those dredge sites and thinking we should farm on those sites um, because they it would if we use native plants it would benefit nature and we there would, there would be products but um, we it, it turned out very early on that farming and restoration needed to be decoupled that you couldn't add nutrients and mechanically harvest and do these things in nature and and for good reason especially on those confined disposal facilities and so those were decoupled a long time ago so we farm indoors and then do restoration outdoors and we focus on um, what are called confined disposal facilities which charleston has savannah has corpus christi a, a lot of ports dredge the port to make it deeper and they put that some of that material in these upland cells which become the water evaporates they become very salty and basically they have like these built walls around them these earthen walls um and that disallows the tides from bringing in the correct seeds and so what happens is invasive species kind of blow the seeds blow in through the winds and and they get colonized by invasive species especially in south carolina like phragmites and like um uh salts uh excuse me um salt cedar from europe and so we kind of borrowed that idea by putting native seeds in a drone and dropping them from the air because the wind was doing a good job of planting these areas they were just doing it with the wrong seeds and so we just took are taking the right seeds and putting them in the air what do you wish, what are some things that you wish you had known, I guess as an undergrad, but even as a graduate student, when you started having a little bit more focus? One is, let's say you're in a class of 30 students and one professor. There is some subjectivity to the way that you are graded. And not just the way that you're graded, but the way that you will experience that classroom through the eyes of the professor and, and how y'all's relationship will unfold. And so what I realized later in the poli-sci department was that I could be the only of the 30 people who got interested in the research of the professor, which to the professor was their whole world, you know, outside of teaching, right, and their family. So that is the easiest takeaway that every student listening should um, should begin doing. Look up your professor's research, read their articles, skim the articles, ask them about them. That will That will immediately make you different than the other 29 folks and I cannot tell you how helpful it, it, it not only is fascinating to learn, oh my gosh, look at what this person has written about. This is this is this is intellectually fascinating, but just selfishly it 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 helps you develop a relationship with them and they will go to greater lengths to make sure you do well in that class and you will get more juice out of it. The second thing is that I have never still and as undergrad been saved by any of the illuminated rectangles in in my life the phone the laptop the tv screen all of those things are very catchy like a flame to a moth you know but that they are try turning them all off for for a few days or a week and see what happens to your grades so yeah if i want to try sea beans uh in, in charleston best to go to a restaurant where one of the chefs is using them or is are, are there but it sounds like there will soon be some retail options there well there's some retail options you know if you live downtown you can go over to the veggie bin if you live um, west ashley james island you can go to cutico if you live north charleston you can go to abundant seafood east cooper maybe go to new york butcher shop um, or simmons seafood no i would say just wing it you know it is it is like 
this little succulent plant, which is 90-something percent seawater. So it's like biting into a little bit of the ocean. And so it's not that hard to figure out in terms of what the use cases are. It's just if you, if you were going to use – if you're going to sprinkle salt somewhere, stop, put this plant there instead, and it'll be a more interesting way. I mean, we've been – we crawled out of seawater and have been – been eating salt for a long time so we've we've given people a new way to experience it i think that's pretty interesting um, mammals especially all, all organisms need salt but mammals especially love it i mean yeah we're just it's just a, a, a new way to experience salinity really jumping into the ocean well sam that is that is awesome your story is just incredible thank you for taking time you probably probably your phone is probably filled with uh text messages and 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 phone messages from your colleague we need sam we have we have a we have an emergency or a crisis where sam he's doing this podcast there's likely yeah there's like not that they they need me probably they're probably all relieved that i'm not at the at the office but there there is likely a fire to put out within 45 minute uh time frame but but ron thank you you bet yeah, thank jesse you. thanks thanks for that thank you for listening to this episode of speaking of college of charleston with today's guest sam norton of heron farms for more episodes and to read stories about our guests visit the college of charleston's official news site the college today at today.cfc.edu you can also find this and past episodes on all major podcast platforms including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a review. This episode was produced by Amy Mercer and Ron Menchaca from University Communications, with recording and sound engineering by Jesse Kunz from the Division of Information Technology. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.